From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we speak with our guest, Ursuline College professor Gina Messina-Dysert, about the changing and at times infuriating roles allowed to women in contemporary faith communities. And we talk about her work with the blog Feminism and Religion. Later on the broadcast, our producer Katie Scroggin gives a review of the new book Weird John Brown by Ted Smith. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dr. Gina Messina-Dysert. She's dean of the School of Graduate and Professional Studies at Ursuline College in Ohio and is one of the founders of the blog Feminism and Religion. She describes her work as an examination of women's issues related to religion and social justice in a global context. Professor Messina-Dysert is the author of Rape Culture and Spiritual Violence, Religion, Testimony, and Visions of Healing, published by Routledge in 2014. And with Rosemary Radford Ruther, she's the co-editor of the book Feminism and Religion in the 21st Century, Using Technology to Expand Borders. Professor Gina Messina-Dysert, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much. You're one of the co-founders of the Feminism and Religion blog online, and in its self-description on the blog's About page, it refers to feminism as the F-word, and I love that. It, it gives a sense that we're discussing something transgressive and something that maybe it's not completely polite to talk about. But at the same time, as with any conversation, there are points in the conversation where nothing but an F-word will do. And, and so as a way of kind of starting our conversation today, when we use this F-word, feminism, what are we talking about? How do you define feminism? Well, great. Um so, you know, feminism is such an interesting word, and people certainly interpret it in multiple ways. Um, for me, I like to think about feminism as really, at its foundation, being about the eradication of sexism and all oppressions. Um, Rosemary Radford Ruther wrote really just a terrific piece about what feminism is for the blog Feminism and Religion, and she focuses on this idea that, you know, Feminism is not about placing um, one gender above the other, um, but really is about honoring the full humanity of every person. And so I think that's really how we need to understand the word feminism. Unfortunately, it's gotten a really bad rap over time. Um, you know, the recent uh, Time magazine survey on if feminism is a word that we should eliminate, I think really demonstrates that people continue to struggle with this word. And uh, I think it's a conversation we need to continue to have and understand that the movement itself is really about, you know, making very much positive social change and doing things that help to, you know, uplift all of humanity. That's what I think it is. Why do you think that it's such a difficult term for us to uh, to engage with? What What is it about feminism particularly that, that makes it such a, a sort of cultural hot potato? Sure. Well, I think that it makes people uncomfortable because, first of all, it's challenging the norm, right? It's challenging the idea of patriarchy. It's challenging the idea of these prescribed gender roles. Um, in addition, I think that we've created you know, negative stereotypes around the word. Um, these ideas of um, women who are man-hating, um, who are seeking to uh, place themselves above men. And, and that, first of all, I do not believe for a second is what feminism is, um, but I think people find it frightening. Um, and so as we take those m misinterpretations and apply them to our understanding. I think the reaction is to to try to move ourselves as far away from it as we can. Um, but also, it's just really the idea that nobody likes change um, or or anything that works against the norm. And feminism is certainly doing that. It's challenging this norm um, that keeps women and and other groups, 
you know, being oppressed in society. And so I think that that, that creates a major challenge. Well, you've used some terms already in the conversation that I want to make sure we get defined. You've mentioned the term patriarchy, and you've mentioned the term sexism. For the benefit of our listeners, could you please let us know what patriarchy and sexism mean? Sure, absolutely. So patriarchy, we were talking about the idea of you know a social structure um, that has a, a hierarchy that is um, you know uh, run by um, a male perspective. Um, and when we're talking about sexism, we're talking about the idea that um, you know, women are living in a society where um, we experience various forms of oppression as a result of our sex. Thank you. You're a founder and one of the contributors to the Feminism and Religion blog online. Uh, can you describe for us the range of writers that we might find at the site? What what sort of what sort of articles would we experience, and and what is the what's the sort of sort of range of of people that contribute to the blog? Sure. We, we have a very, very wide range of contributors to feminism and religion. Um, when we co-founded the blog, uh, our goal was really to create a space, a community, where we could bring a variety of voices together from the academy, from various um, activist circles, religious circles, and from the greater community, because, you know, every voice has value and should be able to participate in the conversation. So that was our goal. Um, and since our founding, um, we have, you know, multiple regular contributors, um, people who write on a regular basis for, um, for the site. And then we have numerous guest contributors. So people um, can submit guest posts um, at any time, and we always welcome those. And so we, we have, I would say, a few hundred voices um, between our, our regular contributors and guest contributors participating in the conversation. And, and really nothing is off limits. I mean, the goal here is to have conversations that focus, you know, uh, uh, on topics that fall under the broad umbrella of feminism and religion. So we have conversations relating to all kinds of things. Some of, you know, the most well-known theologians of our time are participating in these conversations. Um, certainly Rosemary Redford Ruther contributes, Carol Christ, um, Kelly Brown Douglas, uh, you know, some, some really crucial voices that certainly have helped pave the way for, you know, my own learning and, um, and the next generation. And then we have really, you know, wonderful voices from this upcoming generation of women and men who are focused on addressing these issues, feminist issues in the field of religion. And again, they come from the academy, uh, activist circles, religious circles, and, and the greater community. And what we've seen is, um, you know, a very interesting dialogue that's taking place, and it's including voices from all over the world. We have readers now in 181 countries, um, which really speaks to the fact that these topics, people really, really want to participate in the conversation. So that's, that's what we're doing. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Professor Gina Messina-Dysert, Dean of the School of Graduate and Professional Studies at Ursuline College in Ohio, and one of the founders of the blog Feminism and Religion. So when we talk about religious studies and theology, why is it important that religious studies and theology have a feminist contingent? What do feminists offer that religious studies and theology is not already doing by itself? Sure, that's a great question. Um, to begin with, I, I often say that I think if we're, if we're focused on religion and theological studies, we can see that um, religion is really the foundation um, for the oppression of women, looking at um, a variety of things. You know, speaking from a Christian perspective, uh, the creation stories are utilized to really justify the subordination of women. Um, if we look to, you know, Scripture, we see so many various issues for women um, in those texts that need to be addressed. Uh, I often talk about the virgin martyr stories, you know, these stories that have been developed as a way to control women's sexuality. There's 
so many different things that we need to look at. And a traditional theological um, interpretive voice does not really address these issues. Um, you know, if you look at various works and, and, and the perspective in which theological issues, um, scripture, uh, the way that these things are being interpreted, um, a feminist voice brings a very, very different perspective. It looks at the experience of gender in the stories. Um, and so it's something that we desperately need. I often talk about uh, the fact that, you know, when we're thinking about patriarchal religious traditions, we use male language to talk about God, and that is so, so problematic. If God is male, right, I, Rosemary Ruther often says this, if God is male, then male is, is God. Um, and those, those ideas are, you know, something that really, really need to be addressed. Um, growing up in the Catholic Church and in Catholic schools, um, I often say, you know, I was adult age before the idea of God not being male ever entered my mind. Um, and that's really problematic, and I think that that's a struggle for, for many people. And so bringing feminism into the conversation with religion and theological studies, it's, it's critical if we are going to interrupt the various oppressions that exist in our society. It is, I believe, the place that we really need to begin. So if I heard you correctly in your answer, one of the things that you said that I, I really want to unpack is this phrase that religion is the foundation for the oppression of women. Given that very provocative statement that religion is the foundation for the oppression of women, why bother with religion at all? Why stay with a project of religious practice if we look across the traditions, and, and you mentioned uh, the Bible being you know, sort of a, a foundation for any manner of oppressions, why be religious? Well, another really, really terrific question, and something that enters the dialogue repeatedly when addressing the issue of feminism and religion. Um, I think that many feminists would argue that to be religious is to not be feminist. And um, really, I think that there's two pieces to this. Um, understanding what feminism is, which we've addressed, um, and also recognizing that religion, really, if we're looking at what the teachings are, it's meant to be a tool for, for peace. It's meant to be a tool for love, right? Um, I often talk about the idea that, that religion has feminist potential. You know, speaking from, again, a Catholic perspective, a Christian perspective, um, looking to the teachings of Jesus, we're talking about teachings that are, are focused on social justice, that are focused on inclusion and love. And these are certainly feminist, um, feminist at their core. So can you be religious and can you be feminist? Absolutely. Um, feminism calls for us to eradicate sexism wherever it exists, right? Um, that means religion as well. So we should also be working to eradicate it where it exists within religion. It doesn't mean that you walk away from an institution, but that you should be working for change. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Gina Messina-Dysert, Dean of the School of Graduate and Professional Studies at Ursuline College in Ohio, and one of the founders of the blog Feminism and Religion. We're discussing feminism and the contributions it has made and can make to Christian theology and to the broader culture. This is Things Not Seen, conversations about culture and faith. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Professor Gina Messina-Dysert, Dean of the School of Graduate and Professional Studies at Ursuline College in Ohio, and one of the founders of the blog, Feminism and Religion. So the name of the blog is Feminism and Religion, and I'm assuming that that means that we're talking about more than just feminism and Christianity. So when a, when a listener goes to the blog to, to look at it, what is the range of religions that they will encounter there? Sure. Um, you know, our goal is to include every tradition, um, which obviously is difficult, um, but, you know, every, every voice should have um, a seat at the table. And so we have a range, a wide range of um, contributors. You know, of course, yes, Christianity, but also 
Judaism, uh, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism. Um, we certainly ha- represent the goddess voice um, on this blog. Um, and, you know, uh, like I said, we, we are open to every tradition participating in the conversation. So you will find a, a number of contributors focusing on, on different pieces. So, yes, this is a, um, an interreligious dialogue for sure. Well, so I need to ask, why a blog? What can be accomplished with an online conversation spot, a blog, that can't be accomplished with a book or a journal or a conference? Sure, sure. Well, I think that today in the 21st century, I mean, we are experiencing all of these new ways of communicating and engaging one another. Um, You know, in 1985, the Journal of Feminist Studies and Religion was founded, and that was such a critical move um, for the field of feminism and religion, for sure. Um, It created an opportunity for people to go to a particular location, to read about these, you know, particular topics, um, and it it became, you know, I feel like a, a critical, critical piece for the research and ongoing dialogue uh, related to feminism and religion. Today in the 21st century, with the growth of social media and blogs and, and everything that exists, what, what has happened is that we have a, a new way to communicate um, and also a new way to reach people. A print journal and books, um, certainly people can access those and, and read the information, and that's great. But on a blog, what you have here is an opportunity to engage multiple voices in the conversation and, and voices from various regions. Um, as I said, we have readers in 181 countries, so we have voices from multiple perspectives coming in and participating in the dialogue. And this is something that cannot really occur, I feel like, in almost any other format. Um, you know, you're not going to get this kind of engagement when you're reading a book on your own or when you're reading a journal article on your own. But here you can write and respond to the person who put out, you know, this piece and engage them in a dialogue and have a conversation, um, which I find very, very exciting. Well, can you give us some examples of how the Feminism and Religion blog has contributed to ongoing conversations in theology? Are there examples, perhaps, of of how you've seen the blog shift these conversations? Well, that's that's also a um, a, a great question. Um, I think that there there's multiple ways that it's it's contributing in conversation and helping the conversation to grow and shift. Um, First of all, we are having, you know, these very um, senior four sisters, if you will, um, continuing to engage the conversation and having dialogue with, you know, this, this next generation um, of feminists who are um, very, very uh, interested in these conversations related to religion. And so um, we're seeing these four sisters become mentors in a new way and helping the dialogue continue to grow. Um, it's changing um, the opportunity to learn from um, these theologians, these feminists. Um, a lot of people don't have the opportunity to go to graduate school and sit in a classroom with Rosemary Radford Ruther. But here, you can read her work and you can have a dialogue with her about her ideas. So I think that is one thing that is that is super exciting. I also think, you know, it helps us to bring different ideas to the conversation. We're having this, this interreligious dialogue um, in looking at various topics related to feminism or religion, you know, through, you know, these multiple perspectives. And um, I'd like to give you one example, but I'm afraid that I can't because there's just so much here that's happening. But I think it's fascinating that the conversation is so broad and it, and it includes so many different voices. Um, we have somebody who writes regularly about, uh, you know, gaming and feminism and religion, which is which is very, very interesting and distinct. And then we have, you know, people who are continuing dialogue about gendered language, you know, in relation to God. So the topics range 
so broadly, um, and so many different things are coming into play here, it's difficult to pinpoint one thing. Well, what I heard in your answer, and let, let's see if, I, if I've heard you correctly, there's a range of generations. So you talked about the four, the four sisters, the sort of, the sort of wise uh, old guard that are including and engaging with a younger generation. And there's a broad, you mentioned 181 countries, so there's, there's a, a broad uh, range of experience that is brought to the blog, and there's a, a wide diversity of religious traditions. So what I'm hearing you saying is that unlike a journal, and even unlike a conference where this could happen on a very small scale, the blog allows an ongoing engagement with all of these differing uh, perspectives and experiences all at once in real time. Have I heard that correctly? Yes, absolutely. That's absolutely correct. And and that kind of engagement is that is that a novel thing for the theological project? Uh, is that something that shifts and and changes the theological project? I guess what I'm trying to ask is: Has theology been a particular type of conversation with a particular type of people? And do these kind of experiments with blogging open up that conversation and invite in a new type of people? Am I hearing that in what you're saying? Okay, yes, thank you for clarifying. Um, absolutely, that's true. I think generally when we think about the field of theology and who is contributing to the conversation, um, we generally think about, you know, the white male perspective. Um, and here, on the Feminism and Religion Project on the blog, um, what we have is primarily female voices um, from multiple religious traditions, um, multiple racial and ethnic uh, backgrounds, and yes, from the academy, but also from many other backgrounds, religious circles, um, activism, and the greater community. So no longer is the conversation being controlled by one particular perspective, but here we have multiple perspectives and voices that are finding the opportunity to participate and shape the conversation that might not otherwise have this particular opportunity. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with Professor Gina Messina-Dysert. She's Dean of the School of Graduate and Professional Studies at Ursuline College in Ohio, and she's one of the founders of the blog Feminism and Religion. Well, you've begun to uh, range into a territory that I want to ask a question about, but I'm not exactly sure how to phrase it. So let me take a couple of stabs and see what we can get. So we've we've had more than two decades now of what I would call, what lots of people would call, Internet culture. Uh, and a particular style of interaction has grown up with that culture. So if we look at look at any comments section on any subject online, really any subject, and you'll find pretty quickly that in the comments section there's this anonymous, snarky, trolling subculture. And so because the feminism and religion blog is explicitly in an online environment, my question first is, is it difficult to have a serious conversation about subjects like feminism in that environment, and how do you avoid the trolling and the snark backlash taking over and wrecking positive engagement and positive conversation? Sure. Well, this is a serious issue in the online environment across the board, as you acknowledge. On feminism and religion, first of all, we have a common policy um, that we are clear about, that we expect um, that every conversation or comment come in a respectful manner, uh, and and we make sure that that is followed. So on occasion, and it does not happen often in this particular space, um, which we're very lucky about. But on occasion, we will get a comment that is that is inappropriate, and so we monitor those comments. Um, we will remove a comment that doesn't follow our comment policy, and then we will write to the person and ask them to rephrase the comment in a way that is consistent with the policy. Um, that happens very rarely, um, but it has happened, and generally speaking, people will re rewrite their comment and adhere to the policy. Uh, and that allows us to ensure that we are having a very positive and fruitful conversation um, rather than having comments with the snark factor, as you say. Um, and so we've been very, very fortunate that the people who are looking to participate in this conversation you know, have a genuine interest in furthering the dialogue rather than 
than doing the trolling kind of thing. What I'm intrigued about in that answer is, so what what I heard you saying was that there's a uh, an opportunity after an inappropriate comment has been made that there's a gesture of hospitality. You actually reach out, and even though the comment is removed, you give the commenter an opportunity to rephrase and re-enter the conversation. That seems like a very deep ethical commitment to a certain type of dialogue. Am I am I hearing that commitment in in what you're saying? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, we really believe it's so important for every voice to have the opportunity to participate in the dialogue, and also can appreciate that we're talking about issues here that can. Um, be difficult and can create, um, you know, feelings of agitation or aggravation or whatever um, the appropriate way to say that is. And and sometimes we all react in ways that that we shouldn't, right? So um, I think always offering somebody the opportunity to reflect and come back and reenter the conversation is really important. Um, we've never had to block anyone from the site or or um, you know keep anyone from from participating. We've never had that issue, which, um, again, I think really uh, demonstrates that, you know, people who are participating on our site, at least, are really committed to the dialogue, which which is wonderful. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Professor Gina Messina-Dysert, Dean of the School of Graduate and Professional Studies at Ursuline College in Ohio, and one of the founders of the blog, Feminism and Religion. In your description of your own work, um, when we go to your website, for example, you explicitly talk about social justice as a factor of your work, but you, you situate that in a global context. So what does that mean specifically to talk about social justice in a global context, and why is the global context critical for the work that you're doing? When we're thinking about issues related to sexism and issues that are impacting women, um, these issues are global issues for sure. Um, you know, I do a lot of work around the topic of rape culture. Rape culture exists globally. It's not something that we find in, in some places. Um, sexual violence is something that, you know, every woman around the world faces as a very, very serious threat. And so I think that we need to acknowledge the ways that, you know, sexism continues to uh, plague our society and how this continues to be an issue that impacts every woman around the globe. So um, it, it, it is a global issue, uh, and we need to recognize it as such. Um, and so for me, when talking specifically about you know, sexual violence, domestic violence, these are issues that are very, um, very important to me. Uh, my background um, is that I worked with rape and, and domestic violence survivors for about uh, 10 years before going back to graduate school and pursuing the field of theology. Um, and for me, it's always been about acknowledging those issues and the role that religion and theology plays um, in continuing, uh, you know, the sex of society and the violence that threatens women on a daily basis. Now, at its foundation, that is not the goal of religion, right? But it's often used in that way. And so I think it needs to be acknowledged and look at how this is impacting women um, around the world. When you use this phrase, rape culture, could you clarify for our listeners what that means specifically? So we live in a rape culture, a culture where um, women uh, and girls um, experience the threat of violence on a daily basis as a result of their gender. Um, there was just an article that came out that talked um, about the fact that uh, one in three male college students stated that if they had the opportunity to rape um, a woman and get away with it, that they would. This is evidence that we live in a rape culture. You know, the fact that we have a very, very high instance of sexual violence and a very, very low prosecution rate uh, is evidence that we live in a rape culture. So, um those are some of the things that we were talking about in the United States. But, you know, if we look uh, again globally, we see that, you know, sexual violence and various forms of violence um, women are threatened with because of their gender um, happen in multiple forms, you know, every day. Um, and this is evidence, again, that we live in a culture, a rape culture, a culture that perpetrates violence um, based on, on gender. Um, and that this is something very, very serious that we need to acknowledge and address. 
What I heard in your answer is that when we talk about rape culture, we're talking about a pattern of individual choices. So you talked about the survey of the the men on college campuses who said if they had the opportunity to get away with it, they would. So it's a pattern of individual choices. But I'm also hearing that there is a, a pattern of institutional support in our country and in other countries that allow for those individual choices to go unpunished and to and to uh, proliferate. So what I'm hearing is is that there's a, a problem that's both at the individual and the institutional level. And what I'm also hearing in in, in your answer is that feminism is a forum by which uh, that problem at the individual and institutional level can be named and can be critiqued. Have I heard that correctly? Right. That's absolutely correct. So when we're talking about rape culture, we're talking about a larger structural issue, right, that impacts our individual choices and the way that we choose to engage the culture. So um, this is a larger structural issue, rape culture is, and the choices that we make play into that culture, right? We're influenced by the culture that we're living in, and then we make those choices based on it. So I'm going to ask a question, and I, I'm not sure quite how it's going to to land. But how on earth could a white male theologian be threatened by the naming of something like rape culture? Why would there ever be any kind of resistance to that kind of feminist critique? That's a very interesting question, um, and reminds me of some conversations that I've had recently. And I think that when people hear the word rape or uh, movements around the focus of the eradication of sexual violence and rape. Um, again, I think that, that we create stereotypes and we create particular images around those that create fear. Um, and, and I think that's part of the major issue. So someone recently said to me, you know, when they think about the idea of a woman who is angry about rape, it again brings this idea that, you know, women hate men and are looking to um, create some type of separatist society and eliminate, um, you know, men from their communities or or place themselves above men. And again, this is this is not at all what the movement is about. And I think it has to do with, you know, power issues. I mean, everything goes back to power and this idea that if someone is going to take power away from you, it creates panic. Um, and so I think acknowledging that there is rape culture is giving up power in some way, um, and that creates a major piece of the issue. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Gina Messina-Dysert, Dean of the School of Graduate and Professional Studies at Ursuline College in Ohio, and one of the founders of the blog Feminism and Religion. We're discussing feminism and the contributions it has made and can make to Christian theology and the broader culture. This is Things Not Seen, conversations about culture and faith. We'll be back in a moment. Our guest today has been Gina Messina-Dysert. She's Dean of the School of Graduate and Professional Studies at Ursuline College in Ohio, and she's one of the founders of the blog Feminism and Religion. She describes her work as an examination of women's issues related to religion and social justice in a global context. Professor Messina-Dysert is the author of Rape Culture and Spiritual Violence, Religion, Testimony, and Visions of Healing, published by Routledge in 2014. And with Rosemary Radford Ruther, she's the co-editor of the book Feminism and Religion in the 21st Century, Using Technology to Expand Borders. But what I'm hearing in your answer is, you know, we've inherited a lot of institutions and all of them have this problem of sexism. All of them have this problem of patriarchy. That doesn't mean that we abandon the institutions. We, we work to reform those institutions. Have I heard that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think that certainly there are many that have these conversations that feel like, yes, a patriarchal religion should be abandoned. Um, that is not my position. Because as you mentioned, we deal with patriarchy within, um, you know, within our existence all around us. It doesn't mean that you walk away uh, completely. Um, I think working for, for change is what's really critical. Um, because if, if we don't make the choice to work for change, right, then, then who will? Sharon Welch, I think, um, makes such such important statements in in um, her book, A Feminist Ethic of Risk, and talking about the idea that, you know, we often want to see change immediately overnight, and that's not the way that it happens. Um, what we really need to understand is that change takes time and that we need to have a mature attitude about that and recognize that our work today 
um, will contribute to change in the future, but it's going to take quite some time for it to happen. And if we can recognize that and understand that and continue to work for those positive changes, uh, eventually we will see the change that, we, that we're hoping for. Well, how, how can men, and in particular, how can male theologians be allies to you and your work? Well, I think that, that men are allies. I, um, I think that, uh, you know, this is, when we're talking about, you know, feminism, when we're talking about rape culture, when we're talking about all of these things, these are human issues. They impact every single person, not just women. And I think that's one of the big mistakes that we make, is that we assume that rape is a woman's issue, or that we assume that the oppression of women in any form is a woman's issue, but it's not. Um, And so I think that men absolutely are allies, and we see that in many ways. Um, And I think that, you know, the white male theologian, um, I work with some wonderful white male theologians that I see as um, colleagues and allies, and I appreciate the work that we do together. I appreciate the collaboration. And I don't like to think about this as, um, you know, again, uh, you know, some kind of uh, separatist thing and how can you, uh, you know, as a white male contribute uh, or be an ally. I think that, um, I think that White men uh, and male theologians absolutely can be feminists and be part of the movement, and I think that many are. So um, acknowledging the issue and being willing to engage in the dialogue, I think that's that's really critical. Um, But I also think it's really critical that we all acknowledge, again, this is not a women's issue and that there are men who are very, very much involved in the movement. Are there criticisms of feminism that explicitly come from women? And if there are, can you give some examples? Oh, absolutely. You know, many women feel uh, threatened by feminism um, in that it may disrupt their their own particular lifestyle choices um, or what they see as appropriate gender roles, right? I think that, uh, you know, this is an ongoing conversation. Um, you know, when we think about the faithful woman, nobody thinks about the feminist. Um, we generally think of women like Candace Cameron, right? This this image of a biblically submissive woman that, um, you know, um, buys into the idea of a, a male-run household um, and, um, you know, also interprets religion uh, as dictating this idea that, um, you know, decisions in the home be made by the man and the woman has a particular role in the household to cook, to clean, and to raise the children. Um, and I think, you know, people who um, who believe in this particular idea certainly feel threatened by feminism um, because they see it as, you know, disrupting these traditional God-given gender roles, if you will, and that can be very, very, um, very threatening. Well, what what are you working on now? Uh, how has the work on the blog contributed to your uh, ongoing scholarship, and are there projects that are coming out of your your work on the the blog that that are sort of carrying on this in in maybe a book form or maybe in a conference form? Sure. Well, um, you know, the blog has been uh, you know just a wonderful opportunity to connect with with different uh, different people and different ideas, and from this. Um, you know, I've worked on a number of projects. So, yeah, the blog has has really um, developed into some wonderful, wonderful projects. One of the conversations that comes up over and over and over again on the blog, which we talked a little bit about here today, um, is the idea is, is it possible to be both religious and feminist? And so from that question that has been addressed so many times, I ended up uh, co-editing a book with uh, two colleagues Jennifer Zobair and Amy Levin um, as part of the I Speak for Myself series. And so that's going to be coming out uh, this August. The book is called Faithfully Feminist, uh, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim Feminists on Why We Stay. Um, And so it includes um, voices from Jewish, Christian, and and Muslim traditions, women um, who are, you know, really balancing the idea of being both religious in a patriarchal religious tradition and 
and, and being feminist and the ways that they navigate that. Um, I think it's such an important dialogue because uh, so many women are, are, are struggling with this particular identity and looking for ways to find space and, and, um, and navigate such an identity. And so we have 45 women telling their stories. Uh, it's a super exciting project. I think it's probably one of my favorite things we've ever worked on. And um, it's honest and beautiful um, and just going to be a, a great a great piece. So that will be coming out this August. Gina Messina-Dysert, thank you very much for speaking with us today. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much, David. This has been wonderful. Thank you. We've been speaking today with Dr. Gina Messina-Dysert. She's Dean of the School of Graduate and Professional Studies at Ursuline College in Ohio, and she's one of the founders of the blog Feminism and Religion. She describes her work as an examination of women's issues related to religion and social justice in a global context. Professor Messina Dysart is the author of Rape Culture and Spiritual Violence, Religion, Testimony, and Visions of Healing, published by Routledge in 2014. And with Rosemary Radford Ruther, she's the co-editor of the book Feminism and Religion in the 21st Century, Using Technology to Expand Borders. After the break, our producer, Katie Scroggin, looks at Ted Smith's new book, Weird John Brown, right after this. Things Not Seen is a weekly interview program that explores the intersection of culture and faith. If you're on Twitter, please take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. If you want to keep up with me and the silly things that I tweet about, you can do that by following at Dalt Radio. That's D-A-U-L-T Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. If you're listening to the show for the first time and you like what you hear, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Search for Things Not Seen podcast in the iTunes store. And while you're there, we'd love if you took a moment to write a review and give us a rating. That's unbelievably helpful to us in getting the word out about the show. And thank you always for listening. And one more plug. If you haven't yet discovered our daily Religion Moments podcasts, you're truly missing out on a treasure. Each and every day, our senior producer, Katie Scroggin, finds some highlight from religious history and turns it into this incredible, informative little two-minute gem. Seriously, they're brilliant, they're free, and they happen every day. You should be listening. And even better, we have all of them archived on our website at thingsnotseenradio.com. So if you are just now starting out listening to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on a thing. You can go back and explore the entire catalog just like you were traveling back in time. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. There's a new book by Ted A. Smith called Weird John Brown, Divine Violence and the Limits of Ethics. Katie Scroggin offers this review. We often judge acts of violence using secular moral or legal systems, which tend to view religion negatively, even blaming it for such acts of violence. Ethicist Ted A. Smith wants to rethink the assumption that a more just world will result if freed from religious motivations. In Weird John Brown, Divine Violence and the Limits of Ethics, Smith takes up this project by examining the case of American abolitionist and insurrectionist John Brown. In his attempts to end slavery, Brown was often motivated by his interpretations of divine will. He hoped his armed raid on the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry, Virginia in 1859 would set off a massive liberatory uprising. Understandings of Brown have gone through many transformations, with defenders declaring the man a martyr or a heroic defender of human rights, with others seeing him as a religious zealot and madman. Smith uses the man and the historical views of him as ways in which to reconsider reasoning about violence, religion, and the secular state. Employing the work of thinkers such as Carl Schmitt, Giorgio Agamben, and especially Walter Benjamin, Smith scrutinizes the often tacit assumption that a secular state is the only entity justified in using violence to enforce its prerogatives and ensure its well-being, since it is presumed to be an unbiased entity without which human society would collapse. 
In maintaining itself, it claims to be limited by the law. But since the state's very existence is seen as indisputable and of ultimate importance, the laws created and preserved to serve it often run contrary to the interests, health, and dignity of persons within and outside that state. Exemplary here are the Obama administration's policies regarding terrorism. Smith shows how once questionably legal actions, such as extraordinary rendition, drone strikes, and torture, have become justifiable simply by expanding the secular law to include them within its realm. No longer exceptions to the valid use of force, their classification, not their content or effects, is altered to serve state interests. As such developments indicate, simply removing religion from the equation will not necessarily result in greater peace. This practice of making one-time crimes acceptable and of justifying that process via the health of the state also points to the difficulty of criticizing such actions and reasoning, since there is no good greater than the state's survival. It is virtually impossible to get any perspective on or make any critique of the structure or functioning of the state, or even of the assumption of its necessary existence. Enter divine violence, divine not because it constitutes an intervention at the hand of God, but because it breaks into apparently closed systems of assumptions from outside. Divine violence gives the lie to a system's claims to totality, making clear not only that there exists something beyond and not subject to it, but also, perhaps, that that system's only ground is its own self-justification. In other words, divine violence points to a law higher than that by which the system, here the state, functions. But Smith's conception of higher law is distinct from its usual interpretation by religious actors and their critics. Not one more set of commands or duties, Smith's higher law has four qualities. First, instead of issuing orders, the higher law gives us a vision of what existence might look like at its best, but without accompanying that image with any encouragement or demand to force it into being. Second, that vision negates earthly law's claims of ultimate authority over our lives, allowing us, third, to respond freely to, not obey any command thought to be inherent in, what we have seen. Finally, Smith says the response this higher law would have us make is, quote, permeated by the presence of God, a presence not found by equating actions or beliefs with qualities we might identify with God, but encountered in the free response to this vision that provides respite from the law's tyranny. Smith says Brown's attack was a type of negating eruption, an event that confronted people with the realities of how they were ordering their existence. But in trying to force others to adhere to his own particular God-centered code, Brown fell victim to the theocratic and imperative reasoning and action people normally equate with the idea of the higher law. Brown's raid did succeed in revealing the limitations of the country's pre-Civil War ethics. His actions made it apparent that, quote, when the world, the choices available to us, the ways we think about those choices, and even our positions as choosers are radically implicated in evil, end quote, there can be no right action. In other words, given his own culture and circumstances, there was no way Brown could have acted rightly or justly. Even with insights and intentions directed at ultimately good ends, neither he nor those he sought to convince of them were able to envision those ends without the use of eye-opening violence, inevitably doing wrong to somebody. And so even good aims cannot change the fact that Brown's actions were not just. In contrast to one of his biographers' desire to pardon Brown retroactively because he acted rightly, Smith claims that doing so would only result in well-intentioned violence becoming acceptable, just as Obama's policies have stretched the bounds of legality. We should pardon Brown, but as an exception unable to be judged by our limited ethical system, an exception that even in its wrongness pointed out the abuses inherent in the reigning understanding of a just society. According to Smith, Brown was neither freedom fighter nor crazed fanatic, but what Walter Benjamin called a great criminal, quote, someone who in defying the law lays bare the violence of the judicial order itself. In pardoning Brown, we don't approve of his actions, but we do acknowledge the injustice against which he was striving and the formidable task of remedying wrongs whose effects still linger. In wrestling with Brown's legacy, we are also doing what Smith calls political theology, or, quote, reasoning about the form of a higher law. I've barely scratched the surface of, much less done justice to, Smith's book. Among other things, I'd like to hear the author expand upon how his own religious commitments or tradition, even at their best, might try to resist incursions of divine violence.
But in brief, Smith does make a solid argument for the need to interrogate our most fundamental assumptions and authorities, not for the sake of libertarian rebellion or of a pro-religion agenda. Rather, we must do so if our search for a just world is to go beyond the vicious, seemingly futile, and comfortably familiar argumentative circles in which we frequently get trapped. We owe it to ourselves to do nothing less. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. She lives in Chicago. She reviewed Weird John Brown, Divine Violence and the Limits of Ethics by Ted A. Smith. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ's Navy Pier Studios. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Mary Gaffney engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenock. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. Gina, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. David, thank you so much. I just want to tell you, um, really, what a fan I am of your show and what great work you do, and I share it on a regular basis. Oh, thank you. Um, I hope you feel like it went well. I, I feel like it went great. We went a little long, and that's fine because that means that, I mean, we're going we're gonna to be able to have a dynamite show. I'm really glad that we were able to talk about these things. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Have, have a great week. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, you take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.